Would you all pray with me before we get started? Heavenly Father, in you we live and move and have our being. We humbly pray you so to guide and govern us by your Holy Spirit, that in all the cares and occupations of our life we may not forget you, but may remember that we are ever walking in your sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, good morning, St. Martin's. It is good to be with you this morning. I, uh, I've gotten a chance to meet a good bit of you, but not everybody just yet. So I wanted to take a second and uh, sort of in the spirit of our road trip summer theme, tell you about my road trip, my journey that brought me here, my travels. So I'm not originally from Texas, but I got here as fast as I could. I, uh, I moved out to central Texas after college and spent the next few years living there and in the Houston area. And when the bishop decided that I was gonna go to seminary, he told me that I was going to Virginia Theological Seminary, which is right outside DC and is actually where I grew up and where my parents still live. So after finishing seminary in May, I stayed with my parents for a few weeks. I packed up everything I own, every bit of my material possession to move out here. I drove down with a good friend from school, and on our first leg of the trip, we drove from Stafford, Virginia, where my parents live, to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. It's about an eight or a nine hour drive. Now, some of y'all may know this about Gatlinburg, Tennessee, but it is home to the most visited national park in the country, Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And here's something that some of y'all will get to know about me. I love the national park system. Uh, Ken Burns refers to the national parks as America's best idea, and I wholeheartedly agree. Any chance that I get to go to a national park or to even be near one, I take it. So far, I have been to 11, and I'm not saying that I want to visit all of the national parks in my lifetime, but I wouldn't be mad if it happened. Uh, there is, there's just something about them that I love so much. They're these places that have been set aside for conservation and recreation, for public use and enjoyment, and they are the most beautiful places in our country. And I'm not alone in feeling like this. In 2022, there were more than 92 million discrete individual visits to the 63 national parks in the US. Great Smoky Mountains in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, got more than 14 million visits. Zion National Park, in Utah saw pilgrimages from around five million people. Both Yellowstone and the Grand Canyon saw around four, all in just the last year. And now I'm sure that we all know people or even are people who are just a little obsessed with the national parks. And yeah, we get the appeal, sure, to some extent. But the love that some folks have for these places, it doesn't always make the most sense. And here's the thing about parks or roadside attractions or even our great buckies. The fervor and the love surrounding them doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you've been. Why would the Cadillac Ranch in Amarillo see more than two million visitors per year? It's a bunch of graffitied cars half buried in the panhandle, you know? And yep, and it's amazing. Uh, why has the Winchester Mystery House in San Jose clocked more than 12 million visitors in the 100 years it's been open? It's a sprawling, mysterious, haunted mansion 
with at least 500 rooms, likely more. That's weird, and it's unsettling, and it's enthralling. And I'm sure that we each has our own place or thing that we love in ways that we can't really explain. Or we can try, but the words always sort of fall flat. We just know that for some reason, experience, experiencing these things, engaging with that stuff, it compels us. It hits us somewhere behind our chest, and we love it. It makes sense to us, even if it doesn't make sense to everybody else. And I think the reason we love these things so much, these places or events or whatever, is because they're removed at some level from the everyday, from the sort of stuff that we see and experience and engage with in our lives on a daily basis. They allow us this glimpse, however small or large, of something different, potentially something more and greater than the run of the mill of our everyday lives. And it's not a bad thing at all. In our gospel reading this morning, we see Jesus rebuking a crowd who doesn't seem to get what he's offering because it is so far removed from the way that their lives are working and going that they don't seem to get it. They see John the Baptist, someone not eating or drinking, someone so far removed from their daily life and their expectations, and he's met with scorn and derision. He has a demon, they said. They see Jesus, someone who is eating and drinking, but he's eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Something so far removed from their cultured sensibilities, from their expectations, and he's met with scorn and derision. Look, a glutton and a drunkard. And yet, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. To the wise and the intelligent of the world, in Jesus' day and in ours, his actions and those of John the Baptist, their deeds, they don't make sense. They don't make sense to a world that says you ought to only spend time with people you like or people like you. Or to a world that says you have to earn what you eat. Or to a world inhabited by people who think that they're better or above people that are different than them. Last week, Father Allen mentioned that the gospel reading was in the middle of this sort of discipleship discourse where Jesus is teaching his disciples, his followers, how to be those who follow him, those that emulate and imitate the way that he lives and is and moves through the world. And here we're coming out of that discourse just a little bit, and we're seeing Jesus give his message to the rest of the world, not just to those who have already seen something compelling in the prospect of following him. He's come to preach to the cities and the people there, and in our passage this morning, and the verses just in front of it, just outside our lectionary, Jesus is working with some paradoxes, these seemingly opposite things. He points out the crowd's expectations of eating and drinking. And right before our passage, he says that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And finally, he talks about a yoke, a burden, that gives rest, the paradoxes and the opposites. Jesus comes to the world offering something so utterly different than what the world is used to, something altogether beyond what's normal for the world, something paradoxical. And it gets mocked and it gets disdained. So the rest, the easy yoke, the light burden of following the way of Jesus doesn't make sense to a world that says God helps those who help themselves, that says might makes right, that says true freedom is the power to make our worlds as we see fit. And Jesus says, no, 
The real truth, the truest truth at the heart of all reality is that real freedom, real rest is living under his light burden, his easy yoke, laying down our heavy ones, the ones that tell us we have to be a certain type of person or we have to act and be a certain way in the world. Real freedom from all of that is found in following the way of the creator who would become creation, who would become flesh and live among us. And it doesn't make sense. It seems silly and foolish and antithetical to what we know to be true in the world we live in today. But that is just the point. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, and you have revealed them to infants. The wisdom of the world says that we have to pull ourselves up on our own, that what we have in our lives is what we build ourselves. But Jesus counters that with this very silly thing he says at the end of that statement. The truth of this situation has apparently been revealed to infants. So what do they know that we don't? What do babies know that we don't? And I think the answer here is that they know that we are nothing apart from those that care for us, that we would not exist for very long, if at all, without the care and intervention of another, that we're not alone out here and it's not all on us, that none of it is on us. The reality is we, all of us, would not exist or be sustained without the intervention and presence of the one who cares for us enough to tell us the truth, that cares for us enough to give us rest, that cares enough about us to create us as we are, and then tells us what it means to follow him in this life and the next. And the thing is, we know it, or at least we feel it, we felt it. We've experienced it. We've been there. We know that it's a life-changing, earth-shattering, paradigm-shifting thing to follow Jesus. And that following the real way of Jesus, living like he lived, being in community, real community with people that are different than us, opposite, paradoxical to us, that giving up the need to be right or perfect or self-sufficient even, it changes us. It really changes us. It makes us better, happier, more patient and kind. We know it because we've experienced it. We know it because it's happened to us. By our culture's standards, by the wisdom of the world, the intelligence of our world, it just doesn't make sense. But because we've seen it and experienced it, touched it, tasted it, we know it's true. It's impossible and beautiful and paradoxical, and every time we touch it, we touch the eternal and almighty truth every time we confess it because it's the truest truth at the heart of all reality. And that's just the God we serve, the paradoxical God of yokes and burdens that actually set us free to live as we were meant to live, the creator of the universe who chose to become creation and more than that, submit himself to the powers of violence and death and sin in this world. The immortal, eternal, almighty God who chose to die at the hands of those who had no power over him and to put those same powers of the world to open shame by rising from the grave. And by believing that, by acting like it's true, because it is true, our lives change. We change. We start living in the promised eternal life in the here and now. We bear witness to the coming kingdom of heaven. We start to see the cracks in our world. 
We see the bad checks and the false promises of self-interest and self-reliance for what they really are. We see more and more that living the way of Jesus, bearing that light burden, the easy yoke, is the only real way to live. And so we take heart, seeing the world for what it really is, bearing the burden and yoke that Christ himself gifts to us, knowing that somehow, some way, Jesus really did get up out of that grave. Somehow, some way, God really is present in our midst. And that somehow, some way, it really does change us. It gives us a new life, a new way to live life, a new, more accurate, right way to see the world, full of paradoxes, though it is. We continue to take up the yoke of Christ every day, the yoke that recognizes we can't do any of this on our own, that we never could. And we see that for the comfort that it really is. We recognize, as St. Paul says, that it really is in God alone that we live and we move and we have our being. And we preach it to ourselves over and over and over when the world tells us we need to believe or do or be something other than what we are. So I want to close this out with the prayer that I started with this morning. It comes from our own prayer book from the, uh, the Morning Prayer Office, page 100 if you want to check my work. It's called The Collect for Guidance. And I'd love you to pray it out loud with me if you're comfortable with that. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, in you we live and move and have our being. We humbly pray you so to guide and govern us by your Holy Spirit that in all the cares and occupations of our life, we may not forget you, but may remember that we are ever walking in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.